The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Our scripture reading today is from Mark 3, 1 through 6. Again he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come here. And he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Well, I'm grateful to talk about a passage that um, really, as we've been looking, uh, people who encounter Jesus. You know, I listen every now and then, I've mentioned it before, to uh, This American Life. It's kind of an NPR kind of story by story things. Some are worth listening to, some not. And um, oftentimes at the beginning, there are interesting little tidbits or narrative accounts of certain people's lives, uh, one of which I heard uh, recently called Hoaxing Yourself. I don't know if you listen to This American Life. This was a very interesting one. It was about people who really believe a lie so much more than anyone else that they become that. And uh, they began the whole show and, uh, with two individuals in particular, one of which uh, caught my attention a little more than the other. One was uh, a guy who was in college, he was sitting in a room, and everybody who was, uh, it was his freshman year, and he was going to, I think it was Cornell or somewhere like that, and he decided, he was sitting, and everybody was going around telling about what their family, their, their moms and dads did for a living, super powerful like over the top, and it got to him, and, and he, just said, he just made up this story that, well, I grew up, my parents were vegetarians, and they all just, they were handing him a, pizza, a piece of pizza with like meat on it, and, he was, and they just all turned and stopped, it just stopped the room, and so for about three years, he, he on, he was a vegetarian, he decided that he's going to take on this life. The one that actually caught my attention more than that was one of a guy who, and I, I didn't know how old he was in the uh, interview now, I think this is some years later, but from the ages of 14 to 16 years old, decided he would just speak in a British accent. So he just decided, and he wasn't, and he, you know, all his friends, like people, think about this, people grew up with him and knew who he was, he just decided to speak in a British accent. And so he began to believe, and he sa- even said this, He wanted to, um, he would never say that he was from Britain, Britain, but he was British, and he he would just talk, and he would go to, uh, finally his mom said, we need to kind of work on this. We went to a a therapist and sat in the room, and the the therapist was sitting there saying, you you know you're not British, right? And, And his mom, the problem was his mom was in the corner, so anything that he would say in a British accent, she was like, please stop, just just stop doing. And uh, it was just a life that he took on of his own. 
he found, and, and what was fascinating about it is how much he found in both those scenarios, not just that they believed a lie so much, but what they gained from it, that it gave them something. It, it gave them impact. It gave them standing. It gave them attention. It gave them uh, approval. It gave them uh, people kind of going, gosh, that's in- you're interesting. But it really left them living a whole nother dimension, a lie that really wasn't true at all. And, um, and I think that that's what we need to understand from this passage. We talked, Brett did beautifully about what does it mean to be a Pharisee? I, I really want to look even deeper. What does it mean to be a legalist? Because I think we believe legalism is, and being a Pharisee, we kind of keep those synonymous, which we shouldn't, we'll see in a little bit. But being a legalist is taking the law and following it. Like we just, we just follow the law. I'm, but it's actually beyond that. It, it's more than being a rule follower. It's an over desire for you to have the best version of yourselves to be approved. It's essentially using the law to say, how can I get God's approval, other people's approval? It's really living it within a lie so much that you think it's the best version. That's what legalism really is. And you live it so long, and you believe it so long, that you think this is the way that you're gonna be loved the best. And it's, it's not even following the law, it's abusing it, it's using it, it, it it's subtle effects. It, it's so much this, it's hoaxing yourself to think that you can be approved and not just follow God, but get God and other people to follow you. That's a twist. That's really what it is. And I think as we look at this passage, like so many passages in Scripture, where there's this consistent battling, arguing going on between Jesus and the Pharisees. You know, we, we, the Pharisees really weren't bad people. They were trying to live out what they thought was best. And over and over, Jesus is exposing them, whether it's telling them about, in this instance, what's the Sabbath about? What's, what's about, uh, you know, different laws? Who's our, who's our neighbor? You know, there are these constant arguments about what is, what is the law to its fullest? It should free us. It should show us real relationship and not, not isolate us. Martin Luther, uh, the great reformer, um, talked about this, he, the great church father. He said that legalism and license is, is like a drunk man getting on a horse. Essentially, he, on one side is a ditch he could fall into. It's legalism, essentially, you know, following the law to gain approval. But the other side, oftentimes when the drunk man tries to get back on the horse, he flies off to the other side, which is called license. And, and license is another way, in a sense, of saying, well, instead of just trying to follow all the laws to be loved, I'm just going to follow none. <laughs> and I'll just gain approval that way. They also almost come full circle to meet the same thing. And in other words, that's what he's saying is they seem different, but they're the same, same thing, just on the other side of the horse. Where do we find ourselves with that today? Where would you say that you are? I think this, this passage is a very quick application. It should be for us. To diagnose and actually help you examine the characteristics of what it means to be a legalist and how instead we're supposed to be life-giving, 
What the, the Sabbath is made for us to, to see ourselves and for it to be life-giving to us. But I want us to see those, and we've got to hold both. Because think about this. There were Pharisees in the Bible, as we talk about this, that weren't just, they weren't all just bad. There were people who were Pharisees that actually followed Jesus. What, what changed? What does it mean to move from a Pharisee, as we would call a legalist in some sense, approving ourselves by what we can follow, and really being life-giving? What are the characteristics of that? You know, as you look at this passage, it shows us the deep, deep needs of this man. And, and this is the irony of this passage. There is someone coming into the synagogue, whether he was there before or not, however that works, that Jesus goes, and there's a man with a shriveled hand. He has a, a deformity, a difficulty physically. And the discussion ensues of how do we care for him? And instead of it all focusing on how they can care for him, immediately, verse 2, it says, some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. They begin looking to him. These Pharisees, these people. And, and sometimes the Pharisees get this rap of that that's what they're always doing. They're like looking behind everything, trying to catch somebody. That's actually not what they were. Look, legalism spawned out of this, but, but, but here's where it began. When the Jews came out of exile in the Old Testament, and if you read the Old Testament, a lot of it towards the end of it is the Jewish people were in exile and then released back to live their own lives. Now, in the New Testament, what we're reading is a lot of the Jews are under Roman oppression, but there's a different kind of world they're living in. And when they did that, when they went back into society, they broke into four groups. The first group was called the Zealots. The Zealots were a group that decided, well, how are we going to keep God's law? We're going to keep it by fighting against any oppressor violently. In fact, this was a group that often picked up the sword. You can read about different historical accounts of groups or sects of, of these Zealots <coughs> that would actually fight against any sort of oppressor. Romans or otherwise, to say, this is how we keep our people, this is how we follow God, we do it through violence, we do it through physical force, we do it through fighting. Another group called the Essenes did the actual opposite. The Essenes said, how do we keep our relationship with God? How do we follow him? They withdrew, they just left. They literally left the major cities and began their own colonies outside of what were the major areas where people lived. They said, if, we get, if we're going to keep it and have, be close to God, we've got to withdraw. We've got to be away. Another group were the Sadducees. And the Sadducees were a group that said, we're not going to do either of those things. We're going to actually get into the culture, get into what's going on with whoever's in power around us. But what happened to the Sadducees is they decided, you know what, in order for us to follow, we can follow God and also really follow the Romans. They actually capitulated quite a bit. They actually denied several parts of the Old Testament, which would be their scriptures, and they began to say miracles, particularly resurrection, the resurrection itself, is not really necessary. We can, we can be a part of this culture and really get into it and, and enjoy all of its benefits. But the last group was the Pharisees. And if you think about the other three in light of that, the Pharisees were the one group who said, you know what, we're not going to leave, we're not going to withdraw, we're not going to fight with violent force, and we're not going to capitulate. We're, we're going to live in and amongst, but we're going to really work at being faithful. In fact, on the Sabbath itself, they had 39 laws that they created, not because they were just 
meticulous about just law, but they really wanted to try and follow God. They were trying to do it. And, but what happened was, in the midst of it, as they were doing this, their heart, hearts became hard in the process. They began to think, okay, how can I be approved by doing these things? This is why you see this kind of pattern over and over and over from the beginning of all the Gospels, the narrative accounts of Jesus, is Jesus comes in and he talks about a law and they get confused by it. They think, wait a minute, why are you changing the law? They think that their relationship with God comes from their approval of doing it, but they have what's called stubborn hearts. I love what he says. This is the first major characteristic of them, is that he looked around and at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts. Verse 5. Their hearts were stubborn. If you look at that word, stubborn hearts, it's actually patterned all through the Bible. It means a hardness of heart. It means a a lack of understanding. In in Greek, they're they're unwilling to see their own need, and and because of that, they're, they're unable to see anyone else's need around them. Remember what I was saying? Legalism isn't so much that you're checking off all the boxes and doing just the law really well. It's it's actually you're asking the question, am I okay? over and over and over. And when Jesus comes in the picture, it forces them to wonder, am I okay with God? I think I am okay with God. You see, the, the hoaxing of themselves and such is, is trying to feel as though they're okay. They lack compassion for other people because they so desperately need compassion. Do you get it? You see it? That's a big marker. To have a stubborn heart isn't just that you're unwilling to move. It's that you're afraid to. Because if you do, it means you might be wrong. You might be cared for for what you're not over what you are. That's a big shift. That's a huge shift. I was reading an article called The Top Ten Things Pharisees Say Today. It's by a a guy I love to read named Kerry Newhoff. He writes a lot of articles. A couple of the things that he said, I'm not going to read all ten, but a couple of the ones that, that he says are so good for us. Think about this quote. These are quotes that he says that we would say. Sure, I have a few issues, but that's between me and God. It's this privatization. It's this... Uh, there's no real vulnerability. It's, it's my thing and your thing. There's no real connectivity. There's no relational capital there. Another one is, th- those people just need to work harder. Little compassion. It's thinking that we're working so hard. Oftentimes, it's not that we are working so hard. It's that we want to put other people in a position of saying, you don't work hard enough so that we feel better about ourselves. Another is, of course I'm a Christian. And I would even add, of course I go to church. This is what I do. But as we've looked at before, is that really it? The question is, are you happy with me, God? That's really the deep question. I was talking to a guy who works at Daystar Counseling. This is an amazing adolescent group uh, counseling therapeutic group here in Nashville. Um, some of you may be familiar with it. And one of the things that we were actually, this, the, one of the counselors and I coached, were coaching uh, our kids' teams, and I was at this 
you know, kind of thing for the coaching. And, and I was talking to him about, hey, what are you seeing? And he said to me, the, one of the number one things that he sees is overwhelming anxiety in kids through athletics. He said the anxiety for kids who are doing sports right now is so high because they're always asking the question, have I done enough? Are you happy with me? And that's not just young children. We as adults have learned to mask this well. That's actually what the Pharisees have done really well with the law. They have manipulated and taken the law and put it in a position to where they can say, God, are you happy with me? Isn't this what the other parts, when you see the Pharisees in here, in the New Testament, in these accounts, you see them standing before God and doing what? It says even in passages, they stood and justified themselves before God. To say, look at what I've done. Aren't you happy with me? Most of us in this room, if not all of us, know exactly what that tape sounds like. It's something that we have in our, all of our heads. It's someone that we didn't have affirmation from growing up, whether it's a father, a mother, a friend, isolated group. It's that thing that we constantly go back to that we play over and over in our jobs, in our homes, where we're saying, is it enough? Have I done enough? Are you happy with me? It limits our joy. That's exactly, think about this. Jesus is there to heal a man with a shriveled hand to do this beautiful work, and they can't even see it. There's no joy there. It's accusation. In fact, it says when they looked at Jesus, some of them were looking for a reason to accuse him. The language in Greek was actually one of looking at a criminal, waiting for them to actually take something off of a shelf or off of a table to run. It's like they're wa- they are sitting there literally watching like hawks, waiting. They have no joy. They're not watching the man with the hand. They're watching Jesus because it removed all their joy. That's what legalism does. Because why? The good news, what is called the gospel, becomes advice instead of good news. It just becomes news. And I have to say, I'm gonna be really frank with you this morning. I don't know what it was. Maybe, and I believe this, welcome to Christ's presence, if Satan was attacking me this morning, my heart was so sifted. Like, even walking in these doors this morning, I felt so distracted for some reason. As if I was being attacked from something, and I thought, Lord, what is, where am I, where's my focus today? Like, do I come, even as your pastor, and set up our service for you without joy? Or am I focusing on our Savior, Jesus? And by God's grace, he broke through to me. And it was so kind. And I even listened to you sing, and it drove me to my Savior. But I'll tell you what, it is so easy for our joy to be limited because the good news can just be advice. I mean, do we come in here and think, well, that's what this is. I mean, we just, this is how we want to, we really want to be in church because we want to, uh, you know, we want to have like our kids grow up in a good place. We want to feel like we're doing the right thing. I mean, is that kind of what it is for you? Or is it good news? Is it overwhelming? We just sang this song, thank you again for that because I needed that. 
to be overwhelmed with the good news, not some advice about how to just do better in your life. That's not what Jesus is, is upset about. He is angry and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts because they have no joy. There's nothing there. It's performance. And notice what happens from it. When you're in that place of legalism, how do you look at Jesus? They looked for a reason to accuse him. The one, the irony of ironies. Here it is. Jesus is there, the one who can heal him and bring all the compassion. They have none. And what do they do? They turn the table. They leave to meet the Herodians who are complete opposites of them. Don't care about anything religious. They are a part of the Roman colony to, to go to work on the Sabbath to kill Jesus. Do you get the irony? This is what Flannery O'Connor said beautifully in, in her quote in Wise Blood about her character Hazel, who said, believed that, that he could escape Jesus, I mean, escape their sin by avoiding Jesus. I mean, that's what they're wanting to do. They're, they're accusing Jesus. I mean, how is it, let's be honest, the good news becomes advice, and then we begin to look, okay, Jesus, how are you really, how do I look at you? I mean, how are we accusing Christ of being too much in our life, too much working in our life because we want to avoid our sin on our own? We're avoiding Jesus. The characteristics of being a legalist, it, it, it permeates, it, it strips you of joy. It strips you of joy, not just in church, but that's, it's not just a churchy thing. It strips you of joy everywhere. You miss compassion. Compassion itself have you noticed that? Have you noticed those characteristics in you? Is there dry deadness in you when, you when you meet not just spiritual things or coming to the Lord, but anything? Do you find yourself lacking joy? Could it be that we're living a life of advice rather than the good news that is overwhelming? What does it mean to be a person with characteristics of being life-giving. It means that we see others and because we see ourselves in Jesus. Look, notice what Jesus is doing here. Jesus, in verse 3, said, said to the man with the shriveled hand, stand up in front of everybody. He, he wanted this to be there. And he said, which is lawful to do on the Sabbath? Which is lawful on the Sabbath? To do good or to do evil? To save life or to kill? Is Jesus removing the law? No, not at all. He's bringing it to its fullest. What is the point of what we do today? What is the point of the Sabbath? It's to restore. It's to repair. It's for us to examine what's really there. Some of you may have heard this before, either here or in another church, but that the point of Sunday is not to end your week. It's actually to begin it. It's to send you out of these doors to see your relationship with Jesus in everything you do. Not just as the priority, we did church this week, and okay, what's next week? You know, it's to actually give you the lenses, the glasses, to examine, to see everything. What, what it means to live, not with suspicion, but to know that you're, you're actually, God is pleased with you. Isn't that the point of church? It's not so much that we're coming to give to Jesus and to give to God, it's the opposite. 
What transforms our stubborn hearts is that he comes to you and to me. And he makes himself vulnerable and he shows us the beauty of vulnerability. Look, there's a, an article I read that just recently in the Atlantic and this is such a beautiful article. If you want the article, I can send it to you. It was called, Your Flaws Are Probably More Attractive Than You Think They Are. Beautiful messes have a certain allure. Listen to this. Over the past year, visitors to the Rubin Museum of Art in New York City have been revealing their deepest fears and wishes. As a part of a special exhibit, museum goers were invited to write down their secrets on small pieces of of paper and hang the entries on a wall for everyone to see. On one side, people posted their anxieties. On the other side, their hopes. Thousands of visitors contributed like lines like this. Listen to these. I'm anxious because I'm afraid I'll die alone. I'm anxious because I might miss my chance to become a mom. I'm hopeful because life is beautiful and I, I will feel happy soon. The exhibit, which is called A Monument for the Anxious and Hopeful, which was on view from February, uh, it's even going back a year from uh, last February in 2018 until earlier this week, was a catalog of anonymous confessions, a place where people willingly expose their weaknesses and flaws. I'm anxious because I don't have a home for my boys. I've relapsed three times since trying to become sober. I feel like a disappointment to everyone in my life. These, these, more, uh, these are more than 50,000 entries express thoughts that peop- many people wouldn't otherwise share publicly due to their fear of rejection and shame. Listen to this. The article said, we tend to think showing vulnerability makes us seem weak, inadequate, and flawed, a mess. But when others see our vulnerability, they might perceive something quite different, something alluring. A recent set of studies calls this phenomenon the beautiful mess effect. It suggests that everyone should be less afraid of opening up, at least in certain cases. When people imagine themselves in those situations, they tended to believe that showing vulnerability would make them appear weak and inadequate. But when people imagine someone else in those situations, they were more likely to describe showing vulnerability as desirable and good. Can you imagine if this wasn't a museum exhibit, but this was the church? I mean, isn't that what Jesus is doing in this moment? He is holding up a man who in some cases might think is unclean or something wrong with him because because of his deformity and yet Jesus is trying to say the law is for us to look it's for us to have new eyes about not just him but ourselves he's appealing to the Pharisees I want you to hear something When verse 5, when it says, he looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts, we need to be angry. And the word, Greek word distressed, isn't that Jesus was like, what am I going to do with these people? It actually is a word that means he had sympathy for them. Even in this moment, Jesus sees their need on exhibit. They may not have the shriveled hand, but he has sympathy even for those trying to accuse him. Would we be 
a people that realize this is what the church is. It is about us coming in vulnerable, weak. We are a beautiful mess, just like Sean Colvin's song said. What a beautiful wreck you are. We are that wreck. This is why Jesus has come. This is what drives us out. If we understand that, we cannot leave these doors and think about what Jesus said when he said, which is lawful to do on, uh, on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil? That we can't have compassion on anybody else unless we realize that Jesus has come to give us compassion. Compassion is actually an active word. It's something that means compassion. It means going with, passion towards. What does it mean for you to to have compassion so you can take compassion. The Sabbath, this day, is to remind you that it's not just a box checked. It's not to hoax yourself. It's to see yourself for who you really are. So that when you leave these doors, or even if, if there are people in here this morning that aren't used to being in the church, or maybe you're coming in the church and you're thinking, I don't know if I believe this stuff. It's just a compassion is about First, us knowing that God has compassion on us. We don't need to live some lie to get approval. He has done it. Compassion is an active word. It means we practice what we're supposed to do. I love that song. I've been listening to Gabe Dixon lately, who's an incredible pianist. He lives in our city. He has a song called All Will Be Well, and he begins that song by saying, I'm practicing my purpose once again. And it's not a song where it's like he's just, you know, excited or whatever. It's just this song of just living life, practicing a purpose. Are we practicing our purpose because we know who we are? Because we're, we're coming and hearing our identity? This is what common grace means. This is what it means to take good into this city. It doesn't mean, and when we hear that, this is where we lose sometimes. Because over time, for some reason, the, the conservative and liberal church have both taken camps. The conservative side of the church has said, we are all about word and we've, to the detriment of deed. And the, and the liberal side of the church has said, we're all about deed to the detriment of word. Somewhere along the line, in the last 70, 60, 50 years, it has continued to do so. And we have lost the understanding that if we are reading what Jesus is saying, if we really get what the Sabbath is, that man wasn't made for the Sabbath, Sabbath was made for man, it means we're supposed to come to see and be reminded of who we are so that then we can go out and do. It goes together. The law and mercy go together. And they must be lived. They must be taken out. And we should get angry and distressed at things that we see in this city, in our lives, around us. It's not just looking to the next thing. We have a lot of missional communities you can be a part of. Guys, I'm talking about just looking to your neighbor. I love this story Anne Lamont said from Traveling Mercies about washing somebody's toilet. Listen to this. Last night, I decided it was crazy to believe in Christ. Then something truly amazing happened. A man from church showed up at our front door, smiling and waving at me and Sam, her son, and I let him in. And after exchanging pleasantries, he said, Margaret, I, want, I wanted to do something for you and the baby. So what I want to ask is, 
What is a, if a fairy appeared on your doorstep and said that he would do any favor for you at all, anything you wanted around the house that you felt too exhausted to do by yourself and too ashamed to ask anyone else to help with, she said, I can't even say. But he finally convinced me to tell him, and I said it would be to clean the bathroom. And he ended up spending an hour scrubbing the bathtub and toilet and sink with Ajax and lots of hot water, and I sat on the couch while he worked, and I watched TV, feeling vaguely guilty and nursing Sam to sleep. But it made me feel sure of Christ again, of that kind of love. This man, a scrubbing Man scrubbing a new mother's bathtub is what Jesus means to me. Y'all, small. Are we moving in compassion to the people right next door to us, right around the corner we interact with, whether it's in a restaurant or in church or wherever it is, is the compassion that Jesus has on us driving out into what we're doing, doing good, living life? Because if we're paying attention to this passage, The reality of this passage and what this table is telling us is that we're all legalists. There's only been one person ever that has actually been life-giving. There's only been one person ever who's actually encountered the law and not needed approval from it, but had it perfectly from his heavenly Father. There's only one person, only one. And that's Jesus. See, that's what's incredible about this. The amazing thing about this is that Jesus, in the midst of being accused, in the midst of being looked at as a criminal, and being angered about the way that they're treating this man and the Sabbath, he looks at the legalists, the Pharisees, with compassion. That's how you come to this table. You don't come to this table because you can fulfill anything. You don't come to this table because you did the right things or you showed up today. You come to this table because this is Jesus' table. And he looks on you with compassion. You can leave this table and do good for the kingdom of God and continue to pick up the scripture in the Bible and look at what does that mean to do good with the lenses of being following Jesus and not following my own approval, but his. You can leave this table and do that and be equipped to do that. Not because you need to get his love, because you just tasted and ate his love. You ingested it. You're about to experience that. In a minute, we're gonna read the the Lord's Prayer. Before we do, I wanna remind you that the Lord's Prayer is actually a misnomer in some ways. It actually should be called the Disciples' Prayer. It's actually a model for us of how we follow Jesus, how we speak to our Heavenly Father. How do we be Christians? Because Jesus has come to get us and sees you with that. You can come to this table with that compassion. I, like you, am a legalist, and I have to actually even break this bread and pour this wine. And yet, the only way I can drink and eat from this table is because Jesus has fulfilled every law and calls me to follow him because of his eyes of compassion. And he is the life giver.
Let's stand together.